0: Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Misha de Vogel, Head of Navy History and Heritage. The Royal Australian Navy has a long and proud history of participating in peace support operations, both in our immediate region and beyond, including good neighbour operations in Bougainville, Papua New Guinea's Eastern Island province. To discuss the RAN in Bougainville, I'm joined by Professor Bob Breen from Deakin University, where he's an Associate Professor of Strategic Studies. A former Army officer, he has a keen interest in the Australian Defence Force's participation in peace support operations and has researched and written extensively on this topic, including operations in Bougainville. Rear Admiral Alan Dutois, who is a member of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales Canberra, has written extensively on naval history. He has commanded HMAS Tobruk during Operation Bell Easey in Bougainville in 1998, and later commanded a task group and then a task force in the Persian Gulf. Captain Nick Bramwell, who served in HMAS Tobruk during peacekeeping operations in both Somalia and Bougainville, and later commanded Tobruk when she operationally deployed to the Middle East in 2005. Thank you all for joining me. First, to set the scene, Bob Breen, can you please explain the origins and evolution of the Bougainville crisis?
1: The Bougainville crisis begins with colonial borders, where Bougainville became part of an Australian uh, territory uh, where it probably more ethnically and culturally belonged to uh, the islands known as Solomon Islands. In 1975, when Papua New Guinea became a nation, The Bougainvillians said, we want to become a nation ourselves. So from the very beginning, Bougainville has wanted to be separate from Papua New Guinea. Though there were settlements and agreements, over the period of the 1980s, tensions rose because Papua New Guinea initially, and also the Australian government, claimed the rights to the minerals of Bougainville. And a large copper mine at Panguna was established by an Australian company, Rio Tinto, and landholders became discontented with the revenues that were flowing to Bougainville from what they regarded as Bougainville's uh, rights to its own land. In 1989, sabotage and the mine was closed. The Papua New Guinean security forces moved in using tactics that aroused and consolidated opposition within Bougainville to firstly, being part of Papua New Guinea and secondly, what they believed to be accessing the rights to the minerals of the island. Over the next 10 years, um, this grew to being what was known as the Bougainville crisis. Australia took the side of Papua New Guinea as the preferred relationship rather than a relationship with separatists and the encouragement of separatists clearly was an untenable position for the Australian government. But the Australian government had to become involved um, after trying in the middle of 1994-5 to mediate peace talks. They weren't successful and there was not enough good faith. In early 1997... The Papua Guinea government crossed the line and endeavoured to hire mercenaries from South Africa uh, to go on contract after Bougainvillean separatist leaders in Bougainville. For the Howard government, that was too much. And they then moved into intervening uh, to make sure that a peace process was established that would endure and end the Bougainville crisis. However. In Bougainville, Australia was not a neutral third party and the New Zealanders started a process of engaging Bougainvillian factions. Could they agree to go to the Papua New Guinean government and begin negotiations again for peace? Mm. And that occurred after this, what was called the Sandline Affair, because of Sandline International being a group of mercenaries, were rejected from Papua New Guinea. Uh, A new Prime Minister in Papua New Guinea sought peace in Bougainville And there were two talks, a series of talks, in Burnham Army Camp in New Zealand in July and October. And there was an agreement for a truce.
0: Alan Dutrois, the Royal Australian Navy stood by and supported several of these stalled initiatives, operations and contingencies associated with Bougainville up to 1997. What was the nature and extent of this support?
2: Well, as we've heard from Bob, um, there was a long history to this. But if we step back from the Navy's perspective to uh, January 1990, at that stage there was uh, a lot of reports of escalating violence on the island and at that stage there were probably about 6,000 Australians and New Zealanders still either working or living on the island. So Operation Deference was stood up and Australian forces were brought to a high level of readiness uh, to evacuate those Australians and New Zealanders if required. Um, and the Navy's involvement in that HMAS Tobruk and HMAS Jarvis Bay uh, were sent up to Townsville where they sat alongside um, waiting for events to unfold. Um, but things did, uh, tensions eased, um, the ships were stood down and as it turns out those Australians and New Zealanders who were resident on the island were able to evacuate without the need for a military evacuation. We then stepped forward to September 1994, and as Bob mentioned, uh, Operation Lagoon was stood up. Uh, The Navy's involvement in that was uh, effectively HMA's Tobruk and HMA's success. The maritime commander at the time, which was uh, Rear Admiral Don Chalmers, stood up Task Group 627.5, and uh, Tobruk was equipped with uh, two Seeking helicopters, uh, two Army LCM-8 landing craft, um, as well as an explosives ordnance disposal team from Clearance Diving Team 1. So they were embarked in Tobruk, um, and Success had her own Sea King. So we had three Sea Kings between the ships. Um, the interesting thing here was that the captain of HMA Success, which was Captain Jim O'Hara, um, was uh, handed over command of his ship to his second in command, his executive officer, uh, um, and uh, uh, Commander Martin Campbell. And he, uh, Jim, Jim, moved across to Tobruk as the task group commander with a small staff of two Lieutenant Commanders. And it was agreed that Tobruk would become the afloat headquarters for Brigadier Peter Abigail, who was the commander of the 3rd Brigade from Townsville, and he would be embarked in Tobruk. And uh, Jim O'Hara, in addition to being the Navy task group commander, would be the principal maritime advisor to uh, Peter Abigail. And the other first for, uh, for maritime forces is the, Mar- the uh, Chief of Naval Staff at the time, uh, Vice Admiral Rod Taylor, uh, decided that he would give operational control of Task Group 67.5 to the land commander who would be the, the joint force commander for the operation. So it broke quite a lot of new ground, things that we take for granted now, um, you know, sort of breaking new ground at that stage. So uh, success in Tobruk departed from Townsville with a peacekeeping force embarked and we've heard from Bob that that involved a number of nations from within the region. Uh, Success went directly to Bougainville. Um, Tobruk went via Honiara where she collected uh, additional peacekeeping forces from the Solomon Islands Um, and that uh, resulted in 669-odd people being on board Tobruk, which would be about twice the normal number of the embarked forces she'd be carrying. So as you can imagine, things were pretty tight and and comfy at that stage. Uh, She arrived in Bougainville the next day and uh, disembarked the, the peacekeeping force. Um, Success, meanwhile, had uh, arrived at the helicopters. She was doing patrolling off the coast, um, and it wasn't exactly benign. One of Success's, uh, her seeking helicopter, um, took some small arms fire while it was doing a patrol uh, over Bougainville. Uh, Fortunately, no one was injured or hurt in that incident. Um, But unfortunately, by the 18th of October, it became very clear that the Bougainville uh, a Republican Army were not going to attend the peace talks. So they were aborted, uh, the force was withdrawn, the ships returned to Townsville, disembarked the embark force and at that stage reverted to normal operations.
0: Okay, Bob, can you discuss the lead up to and to and establishment of the combined multinational truce monitoring group in 1997? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we pick up the story after the Sandline Affair saw Prime Minister John Howard insist that there be a better effort by the neighbourhood to be good neighbours and intervene in Bougainville. So the New Zealanders, um, who were a, a more neutral third party than Australia, um, uh, convened talks in Burnham um, in July and October. As a result of the October talks, there was talk of a truce monitoring group de- being deployed to Bougainville to monitor that truce. There entered, for me, working at Atlantic Quarters, an intense period of planning and preparation, um, which involved uh, getting HMAS Tobruk loaded and away in December 1997, to take a, um, a group of uh, Pacific Island participants, as well as New Zealanders and Australians, into Bougainville, remembering that this was insisted upon as being an unarmed operation. And by this point, No one in Bougainville had been disarmed. The Papua New Guinea Defence Force or the Bougainville Revolutionary Army or their opponents, another uh, Bougainville faction, the Bougainville Resistance. So the lead-up essentially is an operation that is a very uncomfortable one for the Australian Defence Force. It's a joint effort. It involves neighbourhood uh, participation from the Pacific Islands Um, and it's unarmed, and going into a very armed and unsettled uh, post-conflict situation in Bougainville. Fortunately, as Alan has mentioned, we'd learnt a sufficient amount from Operation Lagoon to do this in a more educated manner, but nonetheless, this was under command of a New Zealand brigadier, making it more complex to make a contribution uh, in a way that didn't in itself Uh, cause a problem as uh, a number of uh, groups not used to working with each other had to go into this uncertain situation.
0: Bob, before we move on, could you please clarify for us what the Sandline Affair was? Why was it called the Sandline Affair and what the Australian component to that was?
1: Uh, The Sandline Affair was uh, Prime Minister Julius Chan... um, uh, of Papua New Guinea, uh, decided with a couple of his ministers that they would hire mercenaries from South Africa, um, call, from what was called Sandline International, um, a corporate group that offered security services, and they flew out a Hind, a Russian Hind helicopter, and we're going to employ a number of mercenaries um, to go after the leadership group in Bougainville. This therefore meant that mercenaries in the Pacific Islands, uh, John Howard I think rightly said that's not what we do in our part of the world and um, aroused uh, effectively the amount of political support required to uh, see the Sandline uh, group ejected from Papua New Guinea and therefore the neighbourhood to step up and say we're going to solve the Bougainville crisis now. It's gone too far. Uh, Chan was to lose his seat and his position as Prime Minister. A new Papua New Guinea Prime Minister came in, Bill Skate, and he said, yes, we've got to do something about Bougainville. And that led to the Burnham talks and the assembling of a group of peacekeepers to go in.
0: Thank you. Nick Bramwell, what was the initial role and involvement of the Royal Australian Navy in supporting the deployment of the truce monitoring group? Can you discuss both the initial deployment of both Tobruk and Success, as well as the uh, Royal New Zealand Naval support sure. or involvement?
3: Sure. Uh, uh, the principal role for the Navy was logistical operational support to the truce monitoring team ashore, but I might just step back a little bit to how we were warned to go. We actually received the warning order, we are on our way to uh, Guam for our, it was end of the year, for our first overseas trip of the year, because for exercises and other contingencies, Tobruk had been pretty much tied to Within three days of Darwin and and Townsville, so we hadn't been anywhere exotic for the entire year. So the the captain managed to negotiate um, for us to get to to Guam and then to come back through um, um, the southwest Pacific through uh, Vanuatu, where we we were going to have our Christmas party. Um, And interestingly, I was acting commanding officer for the trip from our voyage from Cairns up to Guam. So when the warning order came in, it came to me, Um, and it was it was both in signal and also telephone calls to warn us that uh, we were likely to be tasked to go to uh, um, Bougainville and uh, the, the plan then was to turn us around mid-ocean and bring us home um, straight away we managed to negotiate to get to Guam. Um, we didn't tell the ship's company, we didn't want to ruin their visit to Guam, that, um, that they we, we were going to go straight back to Sydney and uh, we did. We, we, we had a four-day visit in Guam and then we had a, a rapid tra- transit for to Tobruk and rapid for Tobruk is, is relative because uh, you know, the, the, she could do about 16, 16 knots on a, on a good day. So, so we had to go straight back to Sydney and, uh, and advise the ship's company that uh, the rest of the, their, their um, goodwill... Um, trip around the South Pacific, it was over and we were going back to to Sydney we were, and then uh, going to load up and head to Bougainville for an indeterminate amount of time. So the ship's company was uh, um, somewhat perplexed. Um, we also, it was the end of the year and we are supposed to, about to go into the major uh, crew changeover and posting period and that was all cancelled or put on hold. So we had a whole lot of people on the ship who thought they were about to leave or, and go ashore and spend Christmas with their families and all that. Other. Those kind of things, um, and that was all put on hold. So we we had some uh, um, some personnel issues to deal with um, before we we uh, we left. But uh, when we we sailed, and uh, we, we uh, actually loaded up in Townsville, of course, and uh, with and, and in Sydney, um, and the principal role for To was transferring the the principal. The, Vehicles and plant equipment, because the trees monitoring team were actually ashore. They had a few Land Rovers, but they didn't have anything else. So it was pretty critical for for us to get there um, to provide them with the unimogs and plant equipment, more Land Rovers and and, and transport, and other logistic supplies um, to keep them going. Success was was more for fuel and for communication support. Uh Tobruk also communication support um, and. Uh, one of the big things we did, similar to Somalia, was providing hotel services to the team ashore Tea because they were living in very rudimentary accommodation in hoochies and tents erected in, inside a, a burnt-out warehouse, basically ashore in Arrowa. It was very hot. It was very humid. Um, it was not a very hospitable um, environment at all. So, um, with uh, and to Brooks, air conditioning was um, problematic sometimes, but but it was working, and we actually had extra air conditioning fitted to the ship before we went um, um, so that we could provide rest and respite for the people ashore to come to the ship, um, have, a, have a hot shower, have a proper meal, um, maybe sleep in a proper bunk and then and then go back ashore. Um, we also had two seekings, so we are providing the, the seeking operational support. Um, I shouldn't forget we, the two LCM8s landing craft, the, the large landing craft that um, Tebrook could carry. Um, she was had a crane specifically um, 18 tonne crane to specifically load those craft and um, to take them wherever we needed to. So they were important assets for the truce monitoring team ashore. Um, We had a sick bay, medical staff, medical supplies um, and um, headquarters sort of ability and element with much better communications than the army had ashore. We had much better connectivity back to Australia through the ship, um, as did success. Uh, the New Zealanders were doing much the same with their ships. Um, when we got there, the, the, the Kiwis were already there, and that actually assumed the role of harbour master for, for the port of Arawa. Um So they uh, they wanted us to, to um, um, ask permission to come in and, and them to do the pilotage, we declined. Um, we said no thanks. We're very happy to do that ourselves. Um, but but the the I can't remember his name, but there was a lieutenant commander um, New Zealander who was, was taking his role as harbour master very seriously. But um, so our principal role was lo- logistics and operational support for the, for the team ashore.
0: Alan. Tobruk returned to Bougainville in early 1998 and spent the next 73 continuous days at sea in the close vicinity of Arawa and Loloho, supporting truce monitoring operations ashore in Bougainville. What was the nature and extent of this operational deployment?
2: I might just start off by saying I actually joined Tobruk when she got back from her first trip up and uh, we sailed on from memory on New Year's Day. And I did my handover with my my predecessor that day and assumed command at sea of Tobruk. And I always remember we dropped him off at Tweed Heads and he got rather wet going ashore in a boat before he got his flight out of Coolangatta uh, Airport. The, the tide was out and I don't think he ever forgave me for that. But our principal role when we got back up to Bougainville was to provide direct but unobtrusive support to the truce Monitoring Group ashore. Because numbers were very limited of what we could have ashore as part of the broader truce Monitoring Group, it was important that our presence was there, but it wasn't felt. Uh, uh, Nick's already spoken about all the roles that we fulfilled and those continued, particularly logistics and communication support. But I've got to say that probably the principal role of Tobruk was to be an insurance policy. We had a lot of uh, Australians, New Zealanders and other Pacific Islanders as part of the Truce Monitoring Group. And if things got back to uh, a violent situation, uh, we were the insurance policy to be able to evacuate those forces ashore and get them to safety. Um, And Tobruk had sufficient size and capability to to do just that. So that was what we practised for and we made sure that we were able to do um, we had fun on our way up. We uh, dodged cyclone. Uh, um, uh, just trying to remember cyclone Katrina. yeah. and uh, it looked like every sort of course that we ch- we chose, the cyclone followed us, but we managed to evade it and arrived safely in, in theatre. We we built up a very close relationship with the uh, truce monitoring group ashore. So whilst uh, we couldn't put any people from Tobruk effectively ashore, um, I was one of the few that could actually get ashore to meet with the commanders, and we did that on a, on a regular basis, and they actually visited Tobruk as well for all the reasons that Nick spoke about. Uh, Colonel Steve Joski was the senior Australian, and he was the deputy to the New Zealand commander. Uh, we also had the special representative, I think he was called, um, um, Mr. Batley and uh, we worked very closely with him so as both the civil and the military side of the operation. Um, but as I say, tensions were still very evident on the island but things were on the improve. We tended to sail every morning, uh, come back at nightfall, anchor in Arrow Bay just out of sight. Um, the only exception was generally on a Sunday where we'd spend the day alongside just to give people a break from uh, the routine of making sure that we remained operationally ready to do what we do. Um, yeah, and uh, effectively on that particular uh, trip we remained in Bogan for 73 days before returning to uh, Fleet based East uh, in, in early March. And I've got to say, that was my first alongside with the ship, having sailed, spent 73 days at sea, and uh, they gave me a very tight berth at Fleet Base 5 to return to, and uh, there on the wharf was the uh, fleet commander, uh, the Navy band and all the families, and I always remember saying to myself, I don't want to mess this one up.
0: Nick, you were second in command of Tobruk at the time and had previously deployed to Somalia in Tobruk five years earlier. What were the challenges in keeping the ship's company and embarked forces focused, operationally prepared and motivated during this sustained and extended period off Bougainville?
3: Sure. I think quite a few similarities between the two operations actually because uh, um must be something about peacekeeping, short-notice deployments. So um, in ninety, end of 1992, um, we'd been at sea for most of the year. In fact, my daughter was born that year. She was born in April and I only saw her for uh, two weeks between April and November. Um, And uh, we were going to be alongside all of Christmas and had a refit for, it was going to go through till February or March in 93. Um, But in the second week of December, we were all recalled from Christmas leave um, and so we were going to Somalia for an indeterminate period of time, So ourselves in Jarvis Bay. Um, So Similar to the Bougainville, when we first deployed to Bougainville, it was for an indeterminate amount of time too. So, um, ship's company, humans, they like certainty. Um, they like to know when something's going to start and when's it going to be finished. When are they going to be home? When, when can they, their postings happen? And with both of these operations, um, we couldn't tell them that because we weren't sure how long we were going to be there until, in fact, for Somalia, we, we were there for two months before we knew we were going to be there for six, um, and, um, Bougainville ended up being the same with us tag terming with with success. Of it took a while before we knew exactly um, how long we were going to be there. Um, so the movie Groundhog Day comes to mind, and in fact, the ship's entertainment team had a sense of humour. So they used to play Groundhog Day quite a lot because, as Admiral de Troyes said, we used to sail every day, um, and we used to do pretty much the same thing every day. It'd be internal exercises, flying training for the for the uh, for the air crew. Um, Damage control exercises, seamanship exercises. There's only so many of those you can do. And as I said earlier, the the environment, it was hot. Um, it was really humid. So working outside of the ship um, um, was uncomfortable. Um, we were still wearing the old combat coveralls in those days. And they were heavy cotton material. And again, not really designed for the tropics. Um, obviously for a for good reason, for, for fire protection and for... for um, practicality on the ship but in the tropics they weren't wasn't a great uniform to wear so um, keeping the ship's company motivated during repetitive training is hard for any ship but but certainly for that operation um, and uh, we we also had army coming coming on board from the, from the troops monitoring team ashore so um, we'd bring them on board um, to try and give them a bit of um, respite from from ashore um, so we had As I said, we had an entertainment team. We had uh, steel deck barbecues, which is, you know, barbecue on the flight deck of the the ship. Um, We had other um, sports competitions and and movie nights and Tom Moller nights and all the kind of things ships have traditionally done for generations. Um, But after 73 days, it starts to get a bit repetitive. And as I said, the movie grand old day said it all.
0: (laughs) In addition to Tobruk... The RAN and Army also deployed several landing craft to the island. Can you explain their role and involvement, please, Nick?
3: Yeah, so we, we took the... They're called landing craft mechanised eight LCM-8s. So they're, they're quite large landing craft. They're, they're designed to take um, up to... I can, they can take a tank. Yeah, they can take they a tank. Or multiples of vehicles or armoured personnel carriers or Unimog trucks or, or the Bushmasters as they have now. They're still using them today. Um uh, they were used for logistic runs within the vicinity of Arrow and, and, and Close. So anywhere the trees Monitoring Team need, needed to, to go, they'd use the LCM-8s to do that. Uh, we also used them as as um, um, logistic craft amongst the ships, New Zealanders ourselves. Um, sometimes they didn't like it. Sometimes we used them to, to take rubbish ashore because they're, they're good... Um, utility craft for that. But essentially they're used for close transport in and around Aral Bay and and within a a day sort of sail they could get up there and and take the tourist monitoring team around.
0: Bob, while the TMG were deployed, talks continued on the island's political future. A ceasefire deal was taking shape and reconciliation was finally underway. What was the situation on the ground in Bougainville like? Uh,
1: The situation was fraught. Firstly, uh, the peacekeepers were unarmed. Um, there were men and women on the ground and there were monitoring teams in remote villages uh, around Bougainville. Um, it was a security nightmare because the factions, uh, in including that's Bougainville factions, and the PNG security forces were all armed. They had been in conflict for almost 10 years. There were plenty of people wanting payback. There was plenty of, um, arguably, opportunities to derail the peace process completely by injuring or killing a peacekeeper. They were easy targets. In a counterintuitive way, the peacekeepers wore bright yellow t-shirts so that there was no one could claim, they didn't know, that was a peacekeeper. And fortunately, The Bougainvillean people seeing the opportunity and seeing that actually in a cultural sense that women had been bought, which meant that you had a cultural obligation to protect those people who'd come unarmed with their women, proved to be the ace card in keeping everyone safe. And also there were kind of enforcers within the Bougainville factions who wanted peace and some who really stupidly didn't and therefore threats were made, death threats, quite regularly Uh, against those perceived in Bougainville to sell out on independence. That was the big fear. So in moving towards a ceasefire agreement, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and trying to get the factions to say, this is the time, this is our opportunity, the neighbourhood has sent the Army, Navy and Air Forces from several neighbourhood countries, uh, let's make it work. But these were enormously tense times And for those of us, I worked at land headquarters responsible for force protection, as it was called. Um, We uh, listened and watched with an intense amount of interest in the well-being of our young men and women on the island.
0: Alan, Tobruk returned to Bougainville for the third successive time uh, in six months in mid-April in 1998. What was the purpose of this deployment?
2: This was quite different from Tobruk's two previous trips up there. Um, because we were going to tra- transition from the Truce Monitoring Group led by New Zealand to the Australian-led Peace Monitoring Group, or PMG as it was known shortly, we took a lot of gear up with us, so we sailed with hundred soldiers, uh, Australian soldiers, three Iroquois helicopters from the 171st reconnaissance squadron, a number of vehicles, generators and plant equipment. In other words, all the things that were going to be needed uh, to transition to an Australian-led force. Um, fortunately, this six-day passage was a lot more benign than our trip up fighting cyclones previously, and I think those hundred troops embarked with us were quite thankful for that. Um, we, we got back up to Bougainville on the 21st of April and uh, we immediately started discharging cargo. But because it was a major change round of New Zealand and Australian personnel, uh, facilities ashore were really pressed and they were pressed in anyway. So, the embark force remained with us for about a week before the New Zealanders moved out and they were able to move into their digs ashore. Um, I think a lot of them would have preferred to have probably stayed on Tobruk at that stage when they, they saw what, what their digs were looking like. Um, but it was a very different uh, return for us as opposed to being out in the bay and not going ashore. Uh, Tobruk Ships Company we were able to get ashore, um, and they were able to participate in a range of sporting activities uh, as you know, uh, things moved ashore, and in fact, we uh, we attended. We were there for Anzac Day, so the original Anzac Day memorial at Kieta Harbour, which had only recently been reclaimed from the jungle. Um, I always remember marching down there. In the, it was still dark in the morning, in the dark, and we came around a corner, and there was these spotlights on uh, a wreck of a Japanese tank from World War II and it was very it's probably my mo- most moving Anzac day that I've I've attended in my my naval career. And uh, yeah so that was uh, the start of our uh, our you know, third deployment.
0: Bob during this deployment Tobruk hosted the signing of the ceasefire implementing agreement at a ceremony alongside in lollaho during the early hours of the 30th of April 1998. How significant was this event?
1: This was probably um, the most tense 24 hours of uh, the journey that the Bougainville people took towards some sort of political future um, and arrangements and uh, agreements with the Papua New Guinean government. Within the Bougainville um, uh, group, there were factions against the ceasefire agreement, uh, even though they had gone to uh, Lincoln in New Zealand and agreed... Um, on the ceasefire and the arrangements for it, but there needed to be a culminating event, signing it off and then transitioning the Australian um, uh, Peace Monitoring Group would take over from the Truce Monitoring Group. Um, The delegates attending um, had all had death threats, uh, including uh, members of their family, so they knew what was at stake. And it looked for quite a while there that the agreement would not be signed and the next day thousands of people from all around Bougainville to celebrate that the war would be over, we're about to gather. The issue then became, would there be signatures on a piece of paper? And uh, though I was not there personally, um, th- this saw what was a characteristic of the Bougainville peace process, the strength of Bougainvillian women. And with tears and with enormous emotion, they said to their men, though what awaits you after this could be the death of yourselves and your families because of the amount of death threats because up on the hill in the Panguna mine area was Francis Ona with a faction that had sworn that there would be no peacekeeping uh, force that would be uh, untroubled by his armed group and that this ceasefire would result in a bloodbath. So the rhetoric was as high as it would get. Without Tobruk there as a secure base without the confines and the ability to go into the wee hours of the morning uh, with refreshments for people to go away, speak and come back and then another round of discussions, I don't think that that would have been signed. Um, I don't know how others felt, but certainly um, unarmed Australians, New Zealanders um, and uh, Fijians would have felt that that night anything could have happened as a result. And the next day during the ceremonies also anything could have happened uh, to have upset and to have seen people being killed. It turned out the signatures did appear, the ceremony the next day, everyone bravely came out, Um, everyone watched closely and it was a victory for the Bougainvillean people that finally they were moving forward substantially towards a peaceful uh, future.
3: this is where the signature... In, in the wardroom of Tobruk, yes. Yeah.
2: So what we'd given up was the, uh, the wardroom of Tobruk for the talks to happen. So I'd been there for the opening of the talks and then we withdrew. And it went into the wee small hours of the morning, it literally did. And I'll it's probably one of the most emotional scenes I've ever witnessed. At the end of this, when they finally put pen to paper, they invited me back as the captain of Tobruk to the wardroom. Um, and they took the, the traditional Bougainvillian and Islander ways that when fighting is over, they break spears. And in my presence, they broke the spears and presented me with the broken spears to indicate that the fighting was over. And regardless of the factions, the warring factions, the Bougainvillians are very religious people, and they started singing a hymn. And the crescendo just built up and built up as they went on for probably about 10, 15 minutes singing this hymn. And that was the end of that peace process. They all departed Tobruk, went off to Arawa to the sports field where the ceremony was going to take place. And at that stage, Tobruk... Job done, we quietly slipped and sailed uh, at about six in the morning um, from Arawah, uh, from, uh, from uh, Lollaho to, uh, to allow that to happen. So, an incredible. So, those spears are in fact uh, in the War Memorial in Canberra. Mm.
1: I'd just like to take this opportunity to, a- to acknowledge uh, Alan while I have him here uh, and something he might not say, but there was a lot of pressure coming down the line. Tobruk was due to sail before this. Maritime headquarters wanted to brook back, and did not appear to understand from the distance in Sydney of just how important this event was. Allen did, and I don't know whether he risked his career. He went on to be promoted and uh, and uh, and uh, acknowledged for his service. But nonetheless, uh, we were very proud of him uh, from those of us on the ground there in the army that the navy stayed for what was transparently and obviously such an important thing to get done.
0: Nick, after the signing of the ceasefire agreement and Brooks' return to Sydney in May 1998, the RAN had an ongoing role supporting operations in Bougainville. What was the nature and extent of this support? How long did it continue?
3: Actually, it's remiss of me that in my previous answers I've, I failed to mention our own landing craft, Heavy, that were involved. So of, of our six landing craft, we had uh, ballot Papen and Brunei, I think, who um, were based in Cairns, and... Uh, Um, they were used to bring logistics support to us, particularly fresh um, and frozen um, produce. So they they would embark frozen, uh, uh, refrigerated freezers and containers on board and they actually did a round-robin sort of trip to to resupply us so that we could stay there for our 73 days uh, without needing to get get resupplied. Um, So those landing craft were involved through the Blue Sea One with us um, when we left, we left the, the landing craft there. So th- the small landing craft heavies actually took on the role of the principal naval support craft to that. And when Belize 1 morphed into Belize 2 from sort of the middle of 98 um, with the transition to the Peace Monitoring Group, um, that actually went through to 2003. And we, we main- the Navy maintained a landing craft presence there throughout that and Tobruk actually did some periodic visits back to Bougainville in that period. I'm, I can't remember how many she did, but I do know I took command of Turok at, at the end of 2003 and she'd been back to Bougainville just the end, the end of that prior to me joining. So I, I was looking at possibly going back to Bougainville again, but it never happened. Um, but uh, So, so Belici 2 went through until I think it was about November 2003 that, that, that it terminated. So that's how long the Navy was involved there. In.
0: Okay, so Bob, following the signing of the ceasefire agreement, the real work began to secure the peace. Can you briefly tell tell us how events subsequently unfolded over the next five years?
1: The Australians were now in charge with the resources that uh, come with a uh, a more capable uh, South Pacific neighbour. And what was intended to be a neutral observing and reporting traditional peacekeeping role changed into something really quite proactive and quite impressive whereby young men and women, and I haven't mentioned, but these were not just ADF military people, but uh, civilian monitors who I had the privilege of training for those appointments from foreign affairs, federal police, uh, defence officials, uh, and uh, then, back then, AusAid, um, all unarmed in remote communities, reporting, but also contributing to what was essential for the peace process, people power to be mobilised and put pressure on negotiations for peace. And uh, though it sort of sounds a bit trite to mention, th- this organising, of especially of women, especially of those Bougainvillians who interrupted their ordinary lives to say, we've got to be actively engaged with peace. It can't be just left to negotiations and formal diplomatic processes and the like. So the PMG, the the Peace Monitoring Group, became, I think, an exemplar of how um, the universal values that we all think we stand for and would like to see apply and for peace to be pursued, this organisation then commenced that process, facilitating the peacemakers of Bougainville to get out front from those who were violent and um, recalcitrant Bougainvillians also to uh, ease the environment between the Papua New Guinea Defence Force and security forces and the Bougainvillean separatists, so no paybacks, that villages would be resettled and displaced people return home and, and feel that they were supported and secure in those homes. The Peace Monitoring Group facilitated that. And then it, it came time to look towards the Bougainville Peace Agreement, which wasn't signed until August 2001. Then came the tricky business of saying now we're going to do the hard stuff, give up your guns. So the gun control process from there on became again, remembering everyone's unarmed, just going out there with goodwill and persuasion and appealing to the common good to say, give up your weapons. Well, young men had been at war with their weapons being, one, for their survival, two, it gave them Traditionally and culturally inappropriate power within their uh, structures. So it was a society that had been absolutely put on its head with guns, getting the guns off them. The Peace Monitoring Group did a fabulous job of. Um, in what I think, again, another exemplar of disarming uh, an armed society with plenty of ill-feeling for trying to catch up with other people. And also, the last point I'd make about that way forward was reconciliation. There's traditional reconciliation, so there was no war crimes investigations, there was no adversarial Western-style pursuit of the wrongdoers. The PMG facilitated traditional reconciliation And I didn't see in my times going backward and forward there over those years any backsliding in terms of, even for capital crime, saying, we're all sorry, we forgive, and then they walked on and, as Alan has pointed out, very religiously and emotionally said that we are now back to peace. So that went through and, uh, as Nick mentioned, it took until effectively the end of 2003, after the peace agreement, to get to a point where there was no need for outsiders to be involved and Bougainville and uh, the Papua New Guinean government went forward and eventually had their referendum for the independence of Bougainville. And no surprise to anyone who had been there, the Bougainvillians voted overwhelmingly to be independent of Papua New Guinea.
0: What happened to Francis Ona and the BRA?
1: Well, probably Alan, uh, you can tell me in more detail about Francis's um, fate.
2: Yeah. Francis remained opposed to the peace process because he was of the view that uh, Bougainville was already independent and was quite capable of managing in its own affairs and didn't want to have anything to do with PNG. And in fact, in uh, May 2004, he proclaimed himself the, the king of the holy land, of, uh, effectively, of Bougainville. And I think that comes back to that religious aspect that we spoke about before. Um, but he remained a bit of a recluse in his uh, area up in the mountains And he finally succumbed to malaria in his local village in 2005.
0: And what happened after 2019?
1: Well, 2019 was the much-postponed and uh, debated referendum. The Bougainvillians um, quite conclusively uh, indicated that they voted for independence. But a part of the Bougainville Peace Agreement is that that vote had to be ratified by the PNG government. And since then, uh, they've never come to a point where they've achieved enough of uh, a consensus in the PNG government to ratify the referendum. Uh, Arguably, um, the longer this is postponed, the more uh, the risk of a return to hostilities. But I think what has happened is essentially Bougainville knows what bloodshed looks like, what communities, fighting communities look like, and don't want to return to that. So it's a protracted uh, negotiation to get the PNG Parliament to ratify their referendum, uh, and then for there to be confidence that Bougainville can uh, continue its future as an independent nation in the Pacific Islands. So it's kind of a stalemate with certain amounts of progress, but largely no one appearing to want to up the ante to uh, return to civil war.
0: Thank you, everyone, for participating today. Before we conclude, I'd like to ask the panel for their thoughts on the lessons learned and legacy of the Royal Australian Navy's involvement in Bougainville. First, I'd like to start with you, Bob.
1: Well, the Royal Australian Navy actually had been involved in the entire sort of decade, on and off, with supporting the Bougainville process. And indeed, maritime uh, vessels from New Zealand and um, uh, Australia had been creating those neutral spaces for uh, negotiations to go on, for talks to continue. And that's one point I would think we should keep in mind um, should there be uh, any return to instability in the uh, Pacific Islands. Secondly... um, the presence of navy ships is really important Uh, i've been involved in the operations uh, in uh, tonga in solomon islands and uh, sort of um, on the water around fiji and the presence of ships makes a big difference in terms of your intentions and also i might add east timor so you know the, the navy is important for peace but also for creating that deterrent presence that persuades those who might be inclined towards violence that there are consequences to behaviour. I think also um, the, the Navy's presence gives great comfort to peacekeepers on the ground to know, uh, as was pointed out, that there is a place to go if things turn out badly. So that emergency backup is a crucial dimension of Navy support for peace support operations. So whereby you know these operations seem to be sort of... Um, kind of peaceful and everyone's kind of agreeing, they are extraordinarily dangerous. They can go wrong very quickly and there's a very proud record of, um, of Australia with its navy uh, being instruments for peace in the Pacific Islands, which we don't sometimes see in other parts of the world, but we can certainly be very proud of the interventions that we had through the, two, the 1990s and the
2: 2000s in the South Pacific. Alan, Well, I couldn't have said it any better than Bob just said it, but I think, you know, encapsulating all of that, the Royal Australian Navy's participation in operations in Bougainville, I think once again highlighted the importance of a deployable and a sustainable offshore ADF amphibious capability. And we see that today, and that continues. And I think... In particular, Tobruk's presence there just highlighted the importance of Tobruk because she was due to be paid off or decommissioned at that stage because we were getting two new uh, converted um, uh, ships, HMAS Canimbala and Manura, were coming online or due to come online. But as it turns out, Tobruk continued on uh, and went all the way through till 2015. So again, that operation highlighted the importance of that capability. The
0: last word goes to
3: you. Fantastic. I think, um, as Admiral de Tua said, I think one of the key things, and I'm obviously biased, I had three postings to Tobruk, in my naval career and in my latter um, seagoing days it was all in Tobruk, um, Somalia, um, uh, Bougainville and then the Middle East for, for uh, my final time. And I think um, one of the key things in my time working in maritime headquarters, I was in the amphibious plans area and in, in, in fleet plans, um, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, and right up to the 2000s, um, certainly we had Canibra that came came online, but Tobruk was going to be paid off every time I served in her. So each time I was posted to Tobruk, there was a cloud hanging over the ship that she was going to be paid off for all sorts of reasons, whether it was funding or utility or, or age or whatever. Um, but something always came up. And there was a, a joke around fleet headquarters at the time that um, we, had, we didn't have that many operations back then. Um, you know, the, the Middle East had st- and, and the Gulf had started. But um, there was one cry, whenever something happened in our local region, there was one cry both in, down here in Canberra and at fleet headquarters was, where's Tobruk? And I think, the, as, again, as Admiral Cross said, we, we're still um, using... That, that skills and, and training that, that Tobruk brought, and, and Jarvis Bay, and, and Knimbler and Manura, um, and we, we now see that replicated in much, much better, larger capability in, in Adelaide and Canberra and Chul's our current amphibious assets, much more capable, but I think for, through the lessons of all the peacekeeping operations and, and other operations and activities of Tobruk and the other ships in the 80s and 90s, it's why we're here in the state we are now with the, with the fleet and being that we have today, so I think it's very important.
0: Sadly, that's all we have time for. My sincere thanks to Bob Breen, Alan Dutoit, and Nick Bramwell. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us, and if you liked this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.